Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, we're actually going to be looking at the same passage that was read during our Advent reading. And so let me read our passage for us, and then we will pause and ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of His Word together. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your mercy and grace that you've already shown us, for the love that you have already poured out on us. Even this day, you are so patient with us, so kind. Father, we acknowledge that being here this morning is a good gift from you, that it was purchased by Jesus on the cross. We don't deserve the goodness that you are showing us by being able to be here singing together, praying together, reading the truth of your word together. And so, Father, we confess our complete and total dependence on the finished work of Christ this morning. Father, we desperately need your help. We are thankful that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to awaken us, to give us understanding. And so we pray that you would do that very thing for us this morning through the truth of your word. Father, we are in our fallen nature not wired to love one another well. And so, Father, I pray that you would convict us and challenge us and help us to see what it means to love one another and how that love is built on the foundation of your love that came first. And so, Father, I pray as we reflect on this this morning, as we see your love displayed in the incarnation and sending Christ in the flesh, even as we celebrate that throughout the Christmas season, I pray that it would be a continual reminder day by day this Christmas season to love others as we have already been loved. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide my words this morning. I pray that you would allow me to only say what is true of you and true of your word and that no one would be led astray this morning and that you would lead us all into your truth. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you all know, our normal practice is to walk through books of the Bible. We talk about that a lot. And one of the reasons we typically do that, we're taking a break from that right now to look at these different words of Advent, and we're looking at love this morning. But one of the reasons that's our typical practice is that it's so helpful to have the full context of the book to know, well, the passage we're in this morning is it's where it finds itself in the argument the author is making, where we've been, where we're going. It's just really helpful. So when we are not going through a book of the Bible, and we're kind of diving in here in the middle of First John, I think it's important to just take a moment to be sure we're keeping in mind the larger picture of what John is trying to accomplish in First John. And I think that will help us get a better grasp of what's going on in First John chapter 4, verses 
7 through 12. And I think it's really important in John's letter in particular. So all we need to do is peek ahead just a little bit in 1 John and look at chapter 5, verse 13, where John tells us why he wrote this letter. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So a few things happening there in verse 13. First of all, it lets us know to whom John is writing. He says he writes these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So this is written to believers, those who are trusting in Christ as their Savior, to Christians. And then he tells us the reason why he wrote this letter. What does he say? That you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us to have confidence and assurance that we have a relationship with Christ, that we belong to him, that we have placed our faith in him. God wants us to know that, to be assured of that. And John tells us that is why he has written this letter. And so John is going to give us the evidences of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's going to teach us what a follower of Jesus should look like? What is the evidence in your life that you belong to God? What are the marks of a life that has been transformed by the saving power of Jesus Christ? Now, how would you answer that question? Right? Let's just pause here for a moment and think about that. If someone came up to you and said, how do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if someone else is a Christian. What, what do you look for? What's on your list of things you would look for in someone to know whether or not they're a Christian, to know whether or not you are a Christian? What would the top five things be? And we would all have different things on our list. You might say, well, I would expect them to have at some point place their faith in Christ. That's, that's a, definitely a good thing to look for. I would expect them to be someone who consistently reads their Bible, has some kind of spiritual disciplines in their life. They, they read their Bible, they pray, perhaps they even memorize scripture. Those would all be really good things to look for. They should be kind-hearted, attend a local church, be committed to a local church, should carry themselves with humility and Perhaps even have knowledge of theology is something we would look for. We would look for how they treat their family. Do they care for their family well? Do they live a life of purity? Right? We could go on and on about all these fruits that we would look for and we ought to look for. I'm not saying otherwise. Those things should be present in the life of a Christian. But I think there's one defining characteristic that often fails to make its way on this list, and that is the love we should have for one another and the local church. John says to us that a defining characteristic of a Christian should be the way they love other believers. A defining characteristic of followers of Jesus should be the presence of love for other believers. That's why the New Testament is full of one another statements love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. The letters of the New Testament, I remind you, were written to local churches. Much of the application of God's word is about how we act as a church together as God's people. In fact, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you 
you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So according to Jesus, how are people going to know that we are his disciples? How are people going to know that we are followers of Jesus? Jesus says, well, by how we treat each other in the local church. John, in fact, if we back up just a little bit in 1 John, makes it even more clear. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life, meaning into eternal life. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The way you know <laughs> that you belong to Jesus, the way you know that eternal life belongs to you is, are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? In fact, we often forget that one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, right? So there's a number of them, but one of them is the most famous chapter, period, and certainly the most famous chapter about love. You already know if, you, if you've ever been to a wedding, if you grew up in church, you know exactly what chapter I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In fact, it is commonly called what? The love chapter. And it's read at weddings all the time. And I'm not condemning reading it at your wedding. Okay? So don't go home and say, Pastor Jonathan judged me for reading 1 Corinthians 13 at my wedding. It's fine. It defines love. But what we often forget is that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was not written for couples. Its original intention was not written to be read at weddings. It's not a romantic chapter. No, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13 to tell the believers in the church at Corinth how they were to treat each other. So, for example, one small section of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the most well-known section, verses 4 through 7 says this, and remember, this is about how you all are to love one another, how I am to love those in this church. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the radical kind of love we are called to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ that demonstrates we belong to God, that we are followers of Jesus, that we have been adopted into his family and redeemed by the blood of Christ. You see, this is one of many reasons why the Bible makes clear that there are no biblical categories for Christians who do not commit themselves to a local church. But when we commit ourselves to a local church, we can carry out this expectation that we will bear the fruit of the gospel and our love for one another. So this is the argument that John is making in our passage this morning. He is saying to us that love for fellow Christians, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that love for them should be a defining characteristic of your life if you are a follower of Jesus. Why is that? Well, John gives us three reasons why that should be true. Number one, love proceeds from knowing God. Love proceeds from knowing God. Number two, love is motivated by the incarnation. 
Love is motivated by the incarnation. So here's, we're reflecting on Christmas. The incarnation motivates our love. And number three, love displays the unseen God. Love displays the unseen God. Now, just to clarify, I didn't put it in these points, but when I say love, I mean love for one another in the local church. This is what I'm talking about. Love for other Christians, because that's what John is talking about. So let's look at this first reason why love ought to be a defining characteristic of followers of Jesus. Love proceeds from knowing God. Look there with me again at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For because love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, the point could not be more clear. We need to love one another. John repeats that phrase three times in these verses in 7 through 12, that we are to love one another, that we are to love other Christians. But, but why is that? Why is it such a crucial fruit of the Spirit? Is it simply because we, we need to love one another? If we're going to be more effective to accomplish the purposes that God has given us, and we're not going to be able to do that if we don't love one another well, is it because if we don't get along and love each other, we're going to get distracted by infighting and bickering and, and arguing about things we shouldn't be fighting about, and it's going to distract us from the gospel? Well, all that is certainly true. All those are certainly advantages that we gain when we love one another, but those are not the reasons that John gives us? What is the foundational reason John gives us for why we ought to love one another? What does he say? He says that we ought to love one another because love is from God himself. And if we love, it shows that we have been born of God and that we know God. Love for one another is a necessary fruit of the Spirit. It is a necessary fruit of the Spirit. In other words, if there is a sacrificial, meaningful, God-honoring love happening in the church, it is only because we have been born of God and know God, the one from whom love came to begin with. Now, verse 7 is interesting, and of course it's true, and we need to dwell here. You know, we, we love one another because love comes from the God that we know. But verse 8 presses the thought even further. You, you see, I think if all we had was verse 7, it would be easy to read it to mean something like, look, you guys need to do a better job loving each other because, I mean, don't you know, those who love are, are born of God and know God. Those are the kind of people who love. So you need to show that you know God and you're born of God by the way you love one another. That, that's certainly true. But verse 8, I think, takes us even deeper. Verse 8 says that anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Now, let's take a moment to just kind of break that down and be sure we understand what John is saying in verse 8. When he says, because God is love, he is giving us the reason why those who don't know God don't love other Christians. In other words, he's saying, you cannot actually know God. You can't know him and at the very same time, not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not possible. And he says the reason that's not possible is because God is love. So let, let me say it another way that I think is really helpful. To know God is to be made like him. To know God is to become more like him. Therefore, because God is love, those who know him 
will be those who love one another. Love proceeds from knowing God. This is the transforming power of knowing God himself. Knowing God has such a powerful transforming effect on us that the more we know him, the more we become like him, which means the more we know him, the more we love because he is love. You may not believe me. Let me show you other scriptural evidence why this is the case. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let me just slowly meditate over that verse with you for a moment. We are beholding the glory of the Lord, and as we do so, we are being transformed. So just pause there. We are being transformed. It doesn't say, as we behold His glory, we have been transformed, that it's already done. No, it's not done. It's present tense. This verb is present passive. It's happening right now. It's an ongoing, habitual, daily process. We are being transformed right now as we behold the glory of God, and we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's a slow, gradual increase of becoming more and more like God as we see more of Him and know more of Him and behold more and more of His glory. It's a lifelong process. The more we know him, the more we become like him. And how does that happen? It happens as we gaze at the glory of God, as we meditate on who he is, as the scripture reveals him. The more we know of him, the more glory is revealed to us. The more we can see of him, then we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, slowly, sometimes painfully slowly, day by day, moment by moment, more and more sharing in his likeness. And one day, one day we're going to see him fully. Jesus is going to return. We're going to have our resurrected bodies. We're going to stare him in the face. And it's going to be a glorious, unimaginable day when that happens. And listen to what 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says will happen in that moment. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Why will we be like him when he appears? What does John say? Because we shall see him as he is. We will finally fully see him. There won't be one degree of glory to another as we're trying to peel back and see more and understand more. No, we're going to see him. We're going to know him. He's going to stand in front of us. And the overwhelming impact of finally seeing Jesus is that you in a moment are made like him. Knowing him makes you like him. That's why John says, if you don't love, you don't know God because God is love. And if you know the God who is love, you're going to be becoming more like him. And you're going to have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love proceeds from knowing God. Therefore, the most effective way for any church to grow in its love for one another is by growing in the knowledge of our glorious, loving God. Look, there are all kinds of steps a church can take to improve interpersonal relationships and cultivate love among her people. And those are not bad things. Those are not evil things. There are all kinds of things that can be done. But the one thing we must do, the best thing we can do is simply week by week, month by month, year after year, decade after decade, keep 
staring at our glorious Savior and the triune God. And as we behold his glory, as we know him, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as we grow in our knowledge of who he is, you will be made a more loving person toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an inevitable outcome, is what John says. And the flip side of that challenge is, is if you find yourself not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, now look, we're all going to have moments. You're going to have moments when you don't love me. (laughs) Well, you'll love me, but you're going to be frustrated with me, right? But we're all going to have moments when it's hard. People are going to say things that hurt someone, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. There's going to be times we disappoint each other. We let each other down. It's going to happen. So I'm not talking about that. But if the, the overall pattern of your life is one where you just don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't even desire to get past the hard stuff, you don't desire to pursue forgiveness, you don't desire to be reconciled, and you're just settled with not loving them, You don't know God. That's a weighty pill to swallow. But it is what John says to us because love inevitably proceeds from knowing God. And as we see him, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are transformed from one degree of loving to another. And so you should find in your life over months and years of knowing God an increase in your love for your brothers and sisters, which means an increase in your love for the local church. So love is a defining characteristic of followers of Christ because love proceeds from knowing God himself. And part of what we are called to know is the glories of the incarnation. And so that brings us to the second reason why love ought to be a defining characteristic of the Christian life. Love is motivated by the incarnation. Look there with me at verses 9, 10, and 11. Remember, verses 7 and 8, John is placing this connection between knowing the God who is love and our love for one another. And now he's going to show us what is this love of God like? When he says God is love, what does that mean? What is it that we are to know about God? That's what he's going to tell us in verses 9 and 10. In fact, I think we need to skip down to verse 11 just so we're sure we see where John is going with this. What does verse 11 say? The the conclusion is, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, if you grew up in church or if you watched any sporting event, you've seen John 3.16, right? This should sound familiar to you, this, this language, right? Where it says in verse 11, God so loved us. God so loved us, right? John 3.16 uses that exact same wording. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. But often when we see that verse, when we quote that verse, when it says God so loved the world, we, we read the word so like it means he so greatly loved the world. Now, that's certainly true, but that's not what the word so means when it says God so loved the world. The word so in that phrase in the original language means in this way. God loved the world in this way, that he sent his only son. That's how he loved us. And that's exactly what John is saying in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, if he loved us like this, by sending his son into the world, then we also ought to love one another. Now, what is the way in which God has loved us? So when it says we, if God loved us in this way, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, how is it that God has loved us? So this brings us back to verses 9 and 10. What is it that he has done? 
Well, John gives us two statements about what God has done. You see that verse 9? In this, the love of God was made manifest. Verse 10, in this is love. So verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. The word manifest means he has shown it to us. He has revealed it. He has shown us what his love is like. And what did he do to show us his love? Verse 9 says, he sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Again, does that sound familiar, right? That John 3.16 language, he sent his only son. Same word as John 3.16. Some translations render it his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Why is that such a big deal? Why is that a powerful demonstration of the love of God that he sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him? Well, it's a glorious reality that he would do such a thing, that we might live through him. But but what is the weight behind it? Well, verse 10 really lands it for us because verse 10 says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He had to be the propitiation for our sin. What does that mean, right? We don't use that word anymore. If you are not reading your Bible, you never say that word, right? So what what does propitiation mean? The word propitiation is a word that means it is a, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath. So when it says in verse 10 that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, it means he sent Jesus to die on the cross to be a sacrifice that would bear the wrath of God, take the wrath of God in our place. Jesus came in the flesh, the preexistent, eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, in time, took on flesh, came and dwelt among us so that he could bear the wrath of the triune God that should have been directed at us. But instead, Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross as the propitiation, as the sacrifice that bears the wrath of God in our place. It's so important here, even as we talk about God's love, to see here in this one verse, both God's wrath on display and God's love on display. And this is why it's so important to see in verse 10 that it says, look, it's, it's, not, it's not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. The point being, it's not like we were walking around doing a really great job of loving God and we earned the right for him to send his son to dwell among us. No, that's not what it says. It has nothing to do Nothing to do with our love for God. It has everything to do with God's love for us. In fact, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our transgressions, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is who we were apart from Christ. Romans 5.10 says that we were God's enemies. So it's not just that we didn't love God. It's not that we were in neutral. We were against him. We were his enemy. Romans 3 tells us that there was no one seeking after God. We're by nature children of wrath. We're his enemies and no one is seeking after him. So yeah, it's not because we loved him. We were his enemies fully deserving his wrath to be poured out upon us. We deserved his wrath and he gave us his love. Jesus deserved love and was given his wrath. That is the great exchange of the gospel. We did not deserve God's love. It is not because we loved him. It is solely because in his free, gracious, long-suffering, patient love, he first loved us. 
And notice with me, God's love does not ignore sin. It doesn't gloss over sin. It's not what happens here. No, sin is dealt with. That's why it says Jesus came in the flesh, what we celebrate at Christmas. He came in the flesh to be the propitiation for our sins because sins had to be dealt with. God's love is a just love. And every sin must be punished and will be punished. God does not ignore sin. He hates sin. And every single sin will be given the overwhelming wrath of God. But for all who trust in Christ, your sin was taken by Jesus. And the wrath of God was poured out on that sin, on Jesus, so that it would not be poured out on you. And if you are apart from Christ, your sin has not been dealt with. And the Bible makes clear that that sin will be dealt with for all eternity, condemned to hell. So let's not cheapen God's love as if his love is indifferent to sin. No, this verse makes clear it is a just love, that he loves us too much to let evil abound and to not justly deal with the evil that exists in this world. God will be just and he will be loving. And it is only through Christ that both can rest in the same place for those who belong to him. You see, in this is love. It's not about our love for God. It is about how he sent his son to take on flesh just so that he could die in our place, that we might be given eternal life so that we might, verse 9, live through him. So what does this mean for us? Verse 11, remember, if God loved us this way, then we ought to love one another. That's the conclusion. Right, we can talk about all the theology and be overwhelmed by it. We ought to be overwhelmed by it. But here's the conclusion. If God loves us like that and we know God, then we ought to love one another just like that. Sacrificially giving of ourselves to others. Again, just a chapter earlier, John states this clearly. First John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If he lay down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's one way to think about it. What exactly has your brother or sister in Christ done to you that exceeds what you did to Jesus? What excuse am I going to lay at the feet of Jesus on the last day? Look, I know I was your enemy and I was a child of wrath. I understand that. I know that I hated you and, and you loved me at the cost of your life anyway and died and suffered in my place. But you just don't understand what Jane Doe did to me. It's, it, it's laughable. It's laughable. And we're all guilty of it. Look, I'm guilty of it. Jesus, I know you love me, but they're just so hard to love. And Jesus is going to look at us and say, let me tell you about someone being hard to love. <laughs> when we hold our love up to the love that has been shown to us, through the incarnation of Christ, then all of our excuses melt away in the streaming blood of Jesus. They're gone. If he so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now listen, this doesn't excuse the sins of other people. It doesn't mean that we ignore sin, just like God doesn't ignore sin. It doesn't mean that we don't need to hold each other accountable. It doesn't mean that if we're hurt, there aren't times when we need to tell the person they hurt us. The Bible does also make clear it is a glory to overlook an offense. We ought to overlook lots of offenses that happen in our life and just let it go. 
But there are other times where we need to deal with it. We need to speak truth to each other. Look, I'm not saying that sin doesn't matter. I'm not saying that how you may be hurt in the church doesn't matter. You should just keep loving and just regardless of what someone does to you. I mean, you should keep loving them, but, but we have to deal with it. We need to hold each other accountable. That's certainly true. But the point is you keep loving and do the hard work. It's how you think about marriage. Marriage is hard. Arguments happen. Conflict happens. But if we're seeking to obey God, we keep loving each other in the midst of the difficulty and the hardship. Well, look, relationships in the church ought to be no different. We love as we have been loved. This is what we should be reminded of at Christmas time. Every time you look at a nativity scene, what you should have in mind is the eternal son of God came as a baby to love me. Not because I loved him, to love me, even though I didn't deserve it, so that his flesh could be torn, so that his blood could be spilled. Man, I need to love my brothers and sisters the way I've been loved. It's what we ought to be reminded of every Christmas season. We should be reminded of it every week for that matter. So as we look at Jesus, as we seek to know Jesus, we will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And we will, over time, find it easier and easier to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, even those who have deeply wounded us. And we should let the incarnation motivate us to love sacrificially the way we have been loved. And then finally, the third reason love is to be the defining characteristic of those who follow Christ is because love displays the unseen God. Love displays the unseen God. Look with me there at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What in the world is John talking about? Why seemingly out of nowhere in verse 12 does he say, no one has ever seen God? What does that even mean? Well, John says about Jesus in John 1:18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, namely Jesus, has made him known. So we haven't seen God, the triune, the, the essence, the holiness, the triune God. We haven't seen him, but Jesus in the flesh, when he came, revealed to us the Father. He, is, he has made him known to us. So when Jesus came in the flesh and dwelt among us, he made the Father known. That's why a little bit later in John's gospel, in chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus has shown us the Father. He has shown us the love of the Father. That's what verses 9 and 10 are getting at. We can't fully see God, but Jesus has shown him to us. Jesus being the propitiation for our sins has shown us what that love looks like. This is what God's love looks like so we can know it and be more like it. But even still, in many ways, that first phrase of verse 12 seems out of place here in this passage. No one has ever seen God. Why, Why is he telling us that? Well, ultimately, I think what John is saying to us is you and I have a role in displaying the unseen God to the watching world. We have a role in displaying the unseen God to the watching world. We have a role in displaying the unseen God to one another. And how do we do that? Well, verse 12 says, if we love one another, what happens? God abides in us. He's in us. As people can see him in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, let me just briefly clarify. When it says his love is perfected in us, it doesn't mean that somehow God's love is less than perfect and we make it perfect. No, God's love is perfect, period. This sense of being made perfect has more to do with bringing to completion. We bring his love to completion in this world by displaying his love to others, by his love growing within us. 
That's what's happening here in verse 12. Essentially, what John is saying to us is that we need to love each other because when we do so, God abides in us and we have the privilege of displaying the glory of God through our love for one another to each other and to the watching world. Now, you may think, how is that possible? How is that true? What, what role do we have in displaying the character of God to the world? Well, I just remind you that Genesis chapter 1 tells us that we were created what? In the image of God. Now, in the fall, that image was marred. It was distorted because of sin. But as redeemed followers of Jesus, the purity of that image is being restored from one degree of glory to another. And so the way we love one another, when we do so, we image forth God. And we help the God who cannot be seen to be seen in the way we love each other. What a humbling task that is. That the way we love one another in this church is a testimony, is a display of the glory of God to a watching world. We have the privilege of exalting the glory of God in the way we love each other. Another way to simply say it is that our relationships in this church are not common and they are not ordinary. They ought to be uncommon and extraordinary because it is God's love that we are to have for one another, even in the hard times, even in the difficult times. Now, listen, I said this a few weeks ago. I want to just say it again. I'm so thankful that I'm able to preach a sermon like this and it not feel like it's some corrective sermon. <laughs> this isn't motivated out of somehow, hey, you guys are not loving one another well and we need to whip you into shape, right? That's not, that's not what's happening here. Instead, this is a safeguard for our souls. I mean, we're certainly not loving one another perfectly. I'm certainly not loving you perfectly. And I would imagine you're not loving one another or me perfectly. So I'm not saying that either, but I'm saying... By God's grace, we've been given a powerful unity in this church. We shouldn't take it for granted. And we need to hear 1 John 4, 7 through 12, especially in this Christmas season, and be reminded that we're called to have a sacrificial love for one another. We are to demonstrate the love of God, be motivated by the incarnation of Christ, that he came to die in our place. And we should be motivated to pursue a deeper knowledge of God so that we can love one another well. So think about it this way. One reason you should be motivated to get up and read your Bible whenever it is you read your Bible during the day. One reason you should be motivated to read good Christian books to help you grow in your faith. It's not just about you. It's so that you can love everybody else really, really well, right? Your individual faith is a gift to others as you grow in your knowledge of who God is. So by God's grace, through the power of the gospel, let's commit to loving one another the way we have been loved. Let's pray together. Father, we are so, so thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. We are thankful, Jesus, that you came and you showed us what the love of the Father looks like. You made the invisible visible. And when we see you, we see the Father. So as we read, Jesus, of your glories on display in the Gospels, I pray that we would just soak in them and grow in our understanding and knowledge of who you are. Father, I pray that you would commit us as a church to growing in our knowledge of who you are so that we can love one another sacrificially, so that we can lay down our lives for one another in a way that displays your character and your nature to the watching world. What a, what a privilege we have as your people. Father, we can't do it in our own strength. And so we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit, for the power of your Holy Spirit to be at work in us through the truth of your word as you continue to transform us from one degree of glory to another until we look Jesus in the eye. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.